Hi, I'm Ellie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall. And you're listening to the Fledgling Theories Podcast, where once a month we pick a new piece of bird research and chat about it for half an hour. As always, you can find the article on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com, and follow along on Twitter at Fledgecast. So today we're talking about a study called Near Ultraviolet Light Reduced Sandhill Crane Collisions with a Power Line by 98%. This is by James F. Dwyer, Aaron K. Pandy, Laura A. McHale, and Richard E. Harness. It was published in The Condor in 2019. So Ellie, how big a problem are power line collisions for birds? Well, it's a fairly big problem. So at this particular study site, they had 300 collisions on just one 250 meter stretch of power line during one spring migration. And this is a, at a study site in Nebraska along the Platte River. So, but you wouldn't normally get 300 birds hitting just a 250-meter stretch of power line. Like, if you look out your window, there's not that many birds crashing into the power line all the time. Right, exactly. This is uh, a particularly concentrated area for bird collisions because it's a protected stopover site for migrating sandhill cranes. So, um, the power lines are strung across the Platte River, and the cranes come down and land around in the habitat around the river and roost in that area, and so there's a lot of interaction with the power lines. So why would a bird hit a power line? Like, what causes it to collide with a power line that's strung across the river or something? Well, a lot of uh, migration um, happens at night when it's dark, um, and so they may be coming to land um, in the dark or in dusk, or taking off in the dark or in dusk, and uh, you just can't see the lines when it's dark. I mean, so there are some, some things that have been tried to reduce collisions. There are these little tags that you can hang on power lines that you actually might have seen near your own homes. You know, sometimes they're little circular discs or little rectangular tags that sort of are hanging on the power lines and flapping. And yeah, the idea exactly. with those is just that the birds can see the tags, right? Right. They reflect. They're reflective and um, birds can see them a little better than the actual just black line when they're coming into a, an area with power lines. There's also like coils to increase the profile of the power line, um, hopefully make it appear a little wider so that it's more visible to birds, things like that. And these tags have worked in other studies, right? Like they, they Yeah, I think there's been one study that has shown that they're, um, they decreased collisions by like 50% or something. So they're, they're fairly effective, but still, even with the tags, we're getting a season with 300 collisions so at these, this site. So these power lines at this study site already had tags hanging on the lines and they're still getting 300 bird collisions. Correct. A year. Okay. So these authors are, are testing a new collision avoidance system uh, that will be used in addition to the tags and the coils. And um, they're trying to see how effective that is. So Wilson, do you want to tell us what this new system looks like? I mean, basically, it's a spotlight, except it's UV light. I mean, the, the whole idea is they, they have these UV lights, and they mount them on the power line poles, and they shine the lights along the power lines, basically. So they're just it's just like a spotlight lighting up the power line, except instead of using a normal light bulb, they're using an ultraviolet light. Right, which is kind of like a bonus feature, because UV light is visible to most birds, um, but not visible to humans. Yeah, and so this is, it's trying to address these collisions that happen at night. The, the, the tags, it seems, were working decently during the day. Right. But they're seeing a lot of collisions at night. So they've got these spotlights that birds hopefully can see it, because it's this UV light, but that humans can't see. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
So if you're a human sort of driving along this nice nature wildlife refuge, you're not going to see a big spotlighted power line. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You're, we're not trying to increase the uh, kind of visual pollution of power lines by shining spotlights on them. But the idea is that the birds would be able to see these lines and therefore avoid them. I mean, the, the birds will still be flying into that area. They're just going to be able to swerve around the power lines, right. basically. It's kind of an ingenious idea. It's one of those things that you think like, oh, I'm so glad someone put this together because if this works, this could be amazing. So how did it work? Well, I mean, it, it seems like it worked very, very well. So they did a, a randomized study where they sort of ran, they, they installed these UV lights. And then for a whole migration season, they basically had a person sitting in a bird blind watching these power lines. So yeah. they're, they're sitting in a blind on the edge of the river watching this place where all the birds hit. And for every night, they randomly decided whether they were going to turn the UV light on or off. So probably some sort of computer random number generation thing. And, and yeah. sort of the, each night, they assigned a treatment, basically. Like, we either turn the lights on or we turn the lights off. And then they counted how many birds hit the power lines every night across this thing. Yeah. And so then you're able to compare how many birds hit the lines when these UV lights are on and how many birds hit the lines when the UV lights are off. Yeah. So they were looking at, at whole flocks of cranes and whether any individual from that flock hit a, the power line. And what they found was that something like 30, I think it's 37 flocks had a collision when the lights were off and only one had a collision when the lights were on. Yeah, and I think they had like 20 nights of observation or 19 nights or something like that for each of the lights off and the lights on scenarios. Yeah. So they're sitting out there for 20 nights with the lights off. 20 nights with the lights on sort of intermixed. Yeah, which is a pretty compelling result. I mean, that seems like, hey, <laughs> this worked pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it, the, basically the birds n didn't hit the lines yeah. when the lights were on. They also measured other things. In, in addition to direct collisions, they sort of categorized dangerous flights and evasive maneuvers, like when they saw cranes coming and then swerve away. Um, and it seems like and anything where the birds flew sort of low over the power lines, within 25 meters of the ground or something, they classify that as a dangerous flight. Yeah. Because there's a potential to hit the lines there. And they also found that the dangerous flights were reduced when the lights were on. Yeah, they decreased a lot. It wasn't quite as dramatic as the actual collisions, but it was very significant decrease. So it seems that the birds might be seeing these power lines lit up by UV light from far enough away that they're able to sort of take their evasive actions early. It's not like they're getting right on top of the lines and then saying, ah! Yeah. Um, you know, they're seeing it from a ways off and they're they're getting high above the lines and sort of avoiding them, right? Yeah, which is great news. So it seems like we have this really amazing dramatic result with the UV lights, but it is important to note that the the line markers, the the tags on the power lines were already in place when they turned the UV lights on. And so it's possible that it's some interaction between the UV lights and the tags that is causing this dramatic change and not just the UV light alone. Yeah, I mean, I think the authors say that they sort of de designed this lighting system to be used just with a power line, like you're just shining a light on the power line. Um, but in this case, there are already these tags there. And I don't think there's anything special except that because there's this big tag, if you shine a light on it, it's going to be more visible. Right. Potentially. Um, yeah, so the question is whether these uh, UV lights alone would work as well as they did with the tags. I think there's an interesting kind of side question there too, which they talk about in the study, which is that it's, it's one thing if a bird can see a power line 
and avoid it. Like that's that's an easy enough task. If you can see the line, you could not hit it. Right. These tags are a little more complicated. What if you can't see the line? You know, what if a bird can't see the power line but only sees these tags every five meters or something? Right. It involves being able to infer the presence of a line holding all the tags up, which is not, it's actually a relatively complicated cognitive task. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess there's no reason to expect necessarily that an animal would know that this tag sort of in the air you know, a series of tags strung along. You wouldn't necessarily expect an animal to know that there has to be something connecting those or holding those up or something. Right. And so, you know, maybe they would try to fly between the tags or yeah. something. So I guess that's that might be one advantage of this light system over the tags is that with the tags, you might still get a case where a bird thinks, oh, I'll just slip between those tags. Yeah. But if this light is actually lighting up the whole power line, then that problem goes away. Exactly. Um, Though I think maybe maybe for another podcast we should do something about uh, bird perception and see. I mean, I think that birds can, to some extent, uh, infer the existence of objects that they can't see directly. Um, we'll have to look for a good study about that because yeah, I'm, not, well. I'm not sure. I don't really know very much about it. No. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to see what we can find about yeah. that. Yeah, I will say that every time I. Uh, come across a study or even like a little informational video or whatever about bird intelligence, I'm always surprised by how much cognitive power they have. <laughs> so one thing that I'm just thinking of is I've seen these videos of these crows in areas where there's ice fishing. And the crows have learned to pull up the... So, so fishermen leave their fishing lines going down into this hole in the ice. And crows have learned to pull the fishing line up so that they can get the bait off the end of the hook. Okay, right. It's very cool to watch. Um, awesome. But anyway, the point is the birds have somehow learned that there's bait there out of sight that they right. can't see. Yeah, and that the line connects to the bait. and The line connects to the bait, and if I put in a cup, you know, it's like a minute worth of work. So it's like a fairly delayed process of, oh, if I keep pulling this line up, eventually I'll get to something that I can't see, but that I know I want it. So yeah. birds clearly have some ability to be aware of things that are out of sight, and I don't know. So I, I just wonder how well that extends to this situation where there's tags hanging from a power line. Are the, is that an easy task for them to say, oh, there, there must be something connecting this line of tags? Totally, and I have no idea whether that ability to make that connection varies across species or family groups of birds or no, anything like that. No idea. Like if cranes are, would be less able or more able to make that decision than crows, who knows? I mean, this is kind of a cool study because uh, this is not really, what you say, like groundbreaking blue skies research, but it relies pretty strongly on some sort of like very theoretical research. I mean, the, the totally. whole point of this is that it relies on this knowledge that birds can see ultraviolet light, which is a fairly new development. I don't know how long people have known that, maybe a couple decades. Right. And it doesn't seem like the idea that birds can see ultraviolet light doesn't necessarily seem like it has any really important conservation implications until all of a sudden you apply it in this way and it's like whoa oh my gosh we can use that um, to help protect birds <laughs> yeah i think this is a great case of sort of taking existing basic knowledge about biology and physiology and coming up with just sort of realizing a very obvious way that that could be used that right that um you know, it's the sort of thing that once you hear it, you're like, oh, of course. Of why course, did, yeah. Why didn't we think of that? Uh, How did it take us so long to come up with that? Yeah, but but there you go. And so I guess, I mean, one 
one thing that we should talk about is that these authors work for a private company. These are not university researchers. They, they work for some private sort of like, seems like it's a consulting firm for energy infrastructure projects yeah, or something. Yeah, it seems like they do some like wildlife assessment, some kind of energy infrastructure optimization type assessment. And so they kind of partnered with this wildlife refuge and also with the public power utility that owns these power lines. Mm -hmm. um, because the utility and the refuge have been looking for ways to reduce the crane collisions. And so these authors sort of said, well, hey, we've got this system that, we've wanted, that we want to test out. Yeah. Um, now, I guess, so what, there was a, a correction published two months after this article. Right. And in this correction, they, they say, oh, well, we forgot to reveal... A, uh, or they didn't say they forget. They say, oh, well, we need to reveal that we have a, a potential conflict of interest because the private company that employs these authors uh, now has a patent for this device that they tested. Yeah, they have so a there's provisional a financial patent. Yeah. Right. So the question is, you know, is this objective science or is this some kind of... Uh, very wily marketing technique <laughs> where they've shown that these are the most effective... Uh, things we have to prevent collisions. Um, yeah. I mean, in this article, the authors say, you know, this is not the, the first time a system somewhat like this has been tested, an ultraviolet thing, but to their knowledge, the only other tests were by other private companies and they hadn't published in the scientific literature. You could sort of find marketing materials from the company, but you couldn't, you didn't really have a good scientific assessment that was available to see how well these things work. And they're saying, well, here we do an actual scientific assessment that's not marketing materials. But um, on the other hand, they didn't say, oh yeah, but also we have a financial interest in this thing we're testing. <laughs> right. So you're just like, ah, oh, come on. You know, like. Yeah, I mean, it is possible that they didn't have a patent at the time that this was published and it was all, you know, they weren't selling it yet and whatever. And then as soon as they got the patent, they um, issued the correction to the journal. Yeah. that. That hopefully that's kind hopefully of hopefully that's happened. the I mean, case, right? Because so I, I should say with when you publish in the Condor here, all the articles at the end have these little these little sections. I'm flipping through the article right now. So there's a section for uh, author contributions where you sort of say what each author on the study did. There's a section for acknowledgments where they, uh, you know, like they thank the public utility because I guess the the power utility had some. Powerline technicians install the system. Um, so there's a author contributions, acknowledgments. There's a funding statement where you have to say where your funding comes from. And there's an ethics statement. And these are sections that every article published in this journal has. So yeah. you have to fill in these sections to publish your article. And so I kind of wonder, like, why? <laughs> you know, if you're looking for, like, a basic undergraduate example of a conflict of interest. <laughs> right, this it is it. <laughs> testing an example that I have a, you know, testing a product that I have a patent for. And right. I have an interest in showing that it works. Yeah. So the fact that they missed that and had to publish a correction two months later is weird. Unless, as you say, funny. it seems a little funny. Unless, as you say... They didn't get the patent until later. Or, I don't know, maybe it was based on this study that the company decided to sort of develop this as a commercial product. Sure, uh, maybe they only had prototypes and not actually a commercial product. Who knows? Yeah. It's a knows? little weird. but um, It's a little weird. And it is a... Uh, it just uh, does raise questions about the bias that funding introduces into potential results. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting sort of view. I'm not particularly concerned about 
this study or these authors. No, it looks like a pretty good study. Yeah, I find this really compelling. I don't think this is some kind of fabricated um, result to market their product. No, but it does sort of raise an interesting question of, of um, you know, science conducted by public things like universities, science conducted by private companies, science conducted by nonprofits. You know, I think on this podcast, we've talked about articles where the main researchers have been employed in all of those areas. Yeah. And there's some excellent science coming out of all of those areas. One thing that I think is particularly cool about um, private science is exactly what this did. Like this is, all they did is find a, a real applied problem and recognize that the knowledge to solve this problem was already out there. Yeah. And they just put it together and they have what looks like a fairly powerful solution. I mean, right. that's, that's a, a you know pretty good bang for your buck in terms of, of uh, research. Yeah. And they're also well positioned to have the resources to kind of innovate a new product, which like, um, and then test that product and see how effective it is, which academic science, it can be very difficult, very arduous to like get things like that done without partnerships with private organizations. Yeah. I mean, you and I are kind of bird researchers. My ability to come up with a solar powered battery system that would install you know, weatherproof on a power line, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Right. You just have to buy one or find someone who can make you one. Yeah. But presumably yeah. this company, you know, this group of authors, I would assume that they have some ornithological bird expertise. I bet they also have some engineering expertise. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of a combination of skills that you don't get as frequently, I think, in university type settings. Yeah. And they have uh, just sort of a, a real on the ground awareness of what the most immediate problems are that need to be solved. Yeah, exactly. This wasn't even really on my radar as something that I would even think about researching because I'm just not aware of the problem. Right. There were some other ethics things um, that you have sort of with any animal study. So in there, they did fill out a, a an ethics section at the end of the study, and they talk about... Um, this blind that they had set up at the base of the power lines. So, so what was the issue with that blind? Well, so one of the primary issues here is that you don't want to do anything in your experiment that's going to cause the birds to flush into the power lines more frequently than they already would naturally. So if you're, you know, standing nearby trying to observe the birds, it's very likely that when you move or your presence is, is just going to disturb them potentially and, and cause them to fly up and maybe hit the power line more frequently than they otherwise would. Also, likewise, if they had tested the, um, the power lines with only the UV light and removed the tags, um, that potentially could have had increased the number of collisions Right, because uh, if you already know that the tags are working at least a little, exactly, then it would be a little problem. Yeah, and this is sort of like I always think of ethics when you're actively handling animals. Like if you're doing an experiment where you have birds in cages and you're exposing them to different lights or something, of course you would need to get eth ethical guidance for that. Yeah. Um, I don't, for observational studies where you're just standing there watching the birds and not really interfering with them in any way, I don't ethical considerations don't spring to mind as quickly, but it's, they're absolutely right here in this case that they could really be causing harm if they're startling these birds and causing them to fly up into the power lines. Right. So, and harm for a number, a, a couple of reasons, like not only because they might hit the power lines, but also because migration is really energetically costly. And these birds are, you know, in stopover habitat to refuel, presumably, and 
having to flush every time you're disturbed by an observer is also very energetically costly and might um, interrupt their ability to use the stopover habitat effectively, which you don't want. So yes, I think they sort of, they had to think about all this and figure out how to set up their system in a way that didn't cause those problems. So they have a blind with that they get inside so the birds can't see them. My guess is that they probably got into and out of that blind at times of day when they were unlikely to disturb birds. Yep. Um, so like not right at dusk when all the birds are sort of landing or whatever. Um, and I think they also say in here that uh, if they had gotten some early data, so they, they collected data on, I don't know, 40 or 50 nights or whatever. Um, but they, But if, say, after 10 nights, they had started to get some data that made it look like their UV system was actually causing a lot more collisions, they say they would have just stopped the study right there. Absolutely. Um, which which makes absolutely a lot of sense. Right. It's kind of the first do no harm principle. So that kind of, like in terms of, of next steps for this, you know, this looks like a very promising system here. I mean, these, I think, I think they said the cost of this system was about thick 6,000 US dollars for this UV setup for this 250 meter thing. Yeah. And we did a little math and calculated how much it would cost just to put the tags. And on this 250 meters of line, with the spacing that they currently have, the tags, it would cost approximately 4,500 US dollars. Yeah. So it's relatively comparable. Yeah, slightly more expensive for the lights, but also they seem to work a lot better. Right. <laughs> um, clearly not the kind of thing you can install in every section of power line, you know, across the entire power line. But for yeah. concentrating on areas like this where there's a high density of birds sort of a small area with a lot of collisions. This looks very reasonable. Definitely. Um, right. I mean, I think the, the first follow-up needs to be figuring out whether these are effective without the tags in place. Hmm. Because um, it's really hard to know from this study what is the combined effect of the two um, collision avoidance systems and what is the UV light. Yeah. I think some, some other things they talk about in the study is that you probably need to do a little research about what other effects the light is having. So one thing yeah. they mention is, what if this light attracts a bunch of insects and then a bunch of bats come to eat the insects and then the bats hit the power lines or something? Yeah. Like you, you <laughs> right, don't know or aerial this. insectivores or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, other bird aerial insectivores. So in this study, they didn't see any of that, but they weren't set up directly to look for that. And this was kind of migration season where it's a little early. There aren't too many insects around yet. Um, but definitely maybe if you're thinking about installing this for all summer long or using it all summer long, you'd have to look at that. I also wonder, I mean, if so the, the idea behind this is that the birds can see UV light just like normal light. I mean, in the same way that we see normal light. Yeah. So even though this doesn't look like a spotlight to humans, mm. to birds, this does look like a big spotlight that you've turned on in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's a great question. So how does that affect their behavior in the stopover habitat to begin with? If like these big spotlights are on, on the power lines all night, does that change what's happening in the habitat? Yeah, I don't know. You know, are they, are they ever trying to sleep in those trees or roost? If they are, are there predators who can also see UV light. I yeah. mean, cranes are pretty big, so I wouldn't think that like a an eagle or a hawk would be able to grab a crane, but but if they could, I mean, maybe there are smaller birds there too. If you turn on a UV light and all of a sudden the hawks can hunt for an hour later at night because they can see with this UV light, right. do they start picking off a bunch of red-winged blackbirds and things? I don't know. I mean, I yeah, think these I are all know. sort That's of an interesting question. follow-up questions that 
you need to address before you start deploying this on a large scale. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the question is really, does this create a, a light pollution in the environment for these other critters? We know that it doesn't create additional light pollution for humans, but that doesn't mean it's not harmful um, to non-humans. Yeah, though I think, I mean, I, I think you could almost say it, it's definitely going to cause some increased light pollution to some extent. Mm -hmm. The question is, you know, weighing the, the costs and the benefits. Yeah, so what's the if, harm trade-off? Yeah, if the harm is to relatively localized populations, it might be worth it, at least in areas like this where you have thousands and thousands of cranes congregating in a really dense area. Because this is an area with a high potential to, I mean, you can save hundreds of crane collisions a year, and maybe the cost is sort of some local insect disruption or something. That might be a worthwhile trade-off in a very few areas like this where the cranes definitely congregate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing that I think they talk about in the beginning of this study is that um, there are, I don't know, something like 15 crane species in the world. Yeah, I right? think that's right. And many of them are endangered, and pretty much all of them have been documented to hit power lines. Oh, yeah. It's like 12 out of 15 have been documented to have significant power line collisions. Yeah. And one of the other species, so sandhill cranes are quite abundant. Um, there's lots of them. Yeah. But one of the other species that hits power lines in North America is is the whooping cranes, which are very endangered. Yeah. Uh, right, and their population is increasing, but the population is very fragile because there were, I think, literally 60 of them 10 years ago. Yeah, and so, you know, this sort of thing might be very useful for cranes all around, including the whooping cranes. Yeah. Um, and might be worth sort of spending a couple thousand dollars and accepting a little bit of local habitat disruption if you can protect a fairly important part of the migration. Yeah, and it's worth saying that I think... Um, applications of, of solutions like this could be very targeted. You know, this is not something that we necessarily need to go out and put on every power line in America, but um, the stopover habitats used by crane species in particular here um, are relatively well documented because it's hard to miss 20,000 cranes. It's hard to miss 20,000 cranes, <laughs> right. Landing on your river. Exactly. So it's, it's a lot trickier to even know what the impacts are for power line collisions for a lot of smaller passerine species because they're just harder to see. They might hit lines and disappear. You know, and we, we just can't find the birds. We don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, these cranes are the size of a toddler or a big, you know. Oh, yeah. They're big. A 10-year-old kid. I yeah. mean, they're big birds. They're big birds. Um, yeah, so it's very different than trying to figure out whether some little sparrows are hitting power lines or something. Yeah, exactly. I've seen, so, you know, with all these collision things, birds are not sort of evenly distributed across the entire landscape. Exactly. They, they are grouped together in specific locations, and those locations are often the same year after year. Mm -hmm. So I saw a study looking at, at window collisions in the Great Lakes during migration again. This was studying small little birds. And it was, I can't remember the details, but I think it was looking at, I think Annie Bracey was the, the author. She was doing a PhD in the Great Lakes region when we were there doing our master's. Mm -hmm. And I think this was her study where she looked at some ah, strip of land, like some little peninsula or something going out to the Great Lakes. 
And I think she found that there were way more bird collisions on one side of this little peninsula than the other or something, or like houses facing a certain direction got a lot of collisions, houses facing a different direction didn't get many collisions. And so basically, at a very small scale, within a couple of miles, there was a big difference in where the collisions were happening that was mostly based on where the water was, where the houses were, and how the sun was shining. Yeah. And so in a situation like that, you might be able to, to take a system like this and apply that there. Could you shine a UV light on those windows in the areas where most of those collisions were happening? You might be able to target it to a very small location, but have a, a fairly large impact because that's where most of the birds are and most of the collisions happen. Yeah, exactly. If we can figure out where the collisions are happening, it's uh, easy to target those places with the solutions that we've got. And this could go beyond window collisions to, um, you know, wind power things. Yeah, sure. Right. Power lines. In this article, they talk about how like radio towers sometimes have a lot of collisions and the guy wires holding up radio towers, like all these things that I would never think about, but I guess you think about if you work for an energy infrastructure company. <laughs> right, totally. And the, you know, the innovation is that these UV lights can be shined on pretty much anything you want them to shine on. So if they work, great. <laughs> so there you have it. 98% reduction in crane collisions. I mean, that's huge. That is pretty much preventing all of the collisions yep. in this season. So very impressive, very neat. Um, I'll be very interested to see follow-ups of, of this UV light as a way to light up obstacles to birds. So if you want to read this article for yourself, it's once again called Near Ultraviolet Light Reduced Sandhill Crane Collisions with a Power Line by 98%. And it was published in the Condor in 2019. And you can find the link to it on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie backslash ecomodel.